welcome to Satorial Stories, LCF's In Conversation series, in which we invite in someone who works in or with fashion, at the, and they have to bring in an item from their work or from their wardrobe, and we use that as the basis of the conversation. My name is Susanna Cordner, I'm Senior Research Fellow of Archives at LCF, and I'm joined today by Amber Butcher. Thank you very much for joining me, Amber. Thanks for having me. Um, in this series, we're inviting people who work in or with fashion, and we kind of try to explore the ways in which that professional perspective affects the way in which they think about clothes and the way that they dress. Um, so to set the scene, it'd be great if you could describe what you do, what your profession is, please. I'm a fashion historian, um, and I sort of use that as an umbrella term for a number of different things that I do. So I'm an associate lecturer at London College of Fashion, and outside of that I write books about fashion history, I give lots of public talks and lectures as well, and I do bits and pieces of broadcasting as well. So all of it is kind of looking at the past through the clothing that we wear or wore. Yeah, fantastic. It sounds like it's all about communication as well, which we'll speak more about later. Um, but for the time being, could you describe how you got into that? What's your career tra trajectory, please? I began, I actually began my career with old clothes working for a vintage clothing mm -hmm. company. So I finished my initial degree, which was a literature degree. And over the summer after I graduated, I kind of had this epiphany that the other thing I'd always in, always really loved, as well as, you know, books and reading and writing, was old clothes. Mm -hmm. So I got a job in my favourite shop, which was Beyond Retro, a vintage store um, just off uh, Brick Lane on, on Cheshire Street in East London. I would spend my lunch breaks kind of reading history books, reading books about vintage fashion. I was really interested to understand the social history behind the clothing we were selling mm. uh, and so through that I kind of um, I became their head buyer essentially um, a position that they hadn't really had before someone to mm, sort of do quality control mm. and um, work with the people that were picking the clothes for us mm -hmm. while I was there I decided I wanted to study it in more depth so I went back to college went to London College of Fashion mm -hmm. did a master's um, there in history and culture of dress. After that, I also started doing my own bits and pieces of writing, um, and so that's how it all kind of came together. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I really like the idea that you started with, first of all, vintage fashion being a kind of personal um, project and passion and relating to your interest in literature and history, but then it being almost commercialised and having to also think about that history and those pieces as, as product. Mm. Um, do you think that's framed or influenced the way that you um, work and research as a historian today, the fact that you think about um, almost the contemporary worth <laughs> and experience mm -hmm. of vintage clothes rather than just as past pieces that are there to be studied? No, not really. Uh, to be honest, I don't know. It's nearly 10 years okay. since I stopped working for in the vintage industry. And I don't know much about contemporary worth, to be honest. I mean, I know, you know, I have an idea of what pieces are collectible mm. and I know what pieces are valuable within that. Um, but, you know, these things also obviously follow fashions and go in trends. But in terms of actual values, I don't really know much about that anymore. Mm. It's kind of not the world I'm in anymore. There's always, within, uh, you know, vintage, well, and antiques, you know, selling in general, there is always this kind of, you know, sort of unease, I guess, around should these pieces be in a museum, mm. should they be being saved, should they be in an archive, or should they be commodities, yeah. you know, on the open market? And I think you get that, whether you're looking at clothes, or whether you're looking at art, or whether you're looking at furniture, you know, anything mm. that could be a commodity or could be in a museum, you're always going to find that sort of, you know, contradiction around it. Yeah, sure. 
and especially when you're looking at the older pieces or particularly rare pieces you know the sort of desire to preserve them and make sure that a lot of people get to see them mm. rather than just one person own them yeah but i think that that's the case with any kind of you know antiquities antiques yeah market absolutely yeah. so it's kind of a case-by-case -case compromise that has to be reached about whether it's um enjoyed by the wearer and their surroundings or whether it becomes an abstracted piece to be preserved yeah that's a good balance to strike so you've kind of described how you work in a range of capacities and different institutions and audiences um and i'm interested in the fact that that means that you'll probably apply your, your expertise in different ways. I was interested when I was researching you to read that you also have um, a role, I'm going to get, try and get the title mm -hmm. right, so National Crime Agency External Advisor, I think you're the only fashion historian <laughs> I've come across with that <laughs> string to their bow, so I'd be really interested to hear what that role entails and how it involves reading garments. Sure. Well, this is something relatively recent that I've just started doing, just yeah. this year actually, um, but something I'm really really finding fascinating. Um, I was contacted earlier this year by a forensics company okay. who said that they were looking for someone that they could work with with regards to clothing and textiles on a case-by-case -case basis mm -hmm. where every now and again remains are found with clothing, clothed or you know with, with textiles of some kind and the ability or having an expert date mm. those textiles or that clothing could potentially be beneficial for the case itself. So I said, oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Mm. And so I've been working on a few cases with them. What's interesting about it actually is that the skills that I employ when I'm working mm. in that capacity is exactly the same skills I used when I was the buyer, the vintage right. clothing buyer. So it's less about, you know, what I do with historical work is you're looking at the past, you're thinking about objects in the past and how they facilitated, you know, various different means of communication or how the construction of those pieces, how how they were constructed, you know, the people's lives that mm -hmm. were involved in the construction of those items, in the wearing of those garments, etc, etc. It's quite conceptual in many ways. Mm. But looking, you know, researching and dating clothing and um, textiles, being able to look at something and recognise what sort of decade in the 20th century it was produced in, that's exactly what I was doing when I was a vintage clothing buyer. Yeah. So it's very much kind of going back to those yeah. skills that I That's really curious. Developed. So it becomes um, almost garment-specific and technology-specific and therefore, yeah, really about garnering a particular date rather than looking at necessarily a connected personality mm. and, yeah, mm. and process or context. That's really, really interesting. So... You're an incredibly busy person because in addition to that and the other roles that you've already outlined, um, I believe you've also published a book every year since 2014. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite an impressive claim. <laughs> um, with a really wide range of subjects from uh, looking at nautical fashions through to fashion and film, through to your most recent study on fashionable figures through history. So I'm curious about the, one, the impressive rate at which you work <laughs> <laughs> and do that kind of range of, of titles and subjects um do you think that the book is your chosen medium for your work going forward and uh, as a second question within that is that because it gets gives you this opportunity to grapple with different subjects as you go along yes it has been quite rapid pace <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, over the last few years definitely I mean, I do really, I, obviously I really enjoy working on books, otherwise I wouldn't have done, you know, the last um, five that I've done. Mm. I do think I'm going to take a bit of a break mm -hmm. for a while because it's, you know, it's a it very, it 
no one needs to be working at that rate. Right. I would like to spend some time focusing on some other things and just having a bit more time off to kind of process things and develop new ideas mm-hmm. and think about new um, sort of research areas as well, basically. So I think I will certainly, I think books would always be something that I will be working on and will come back to in the future. But I think I need to take some time to incubate new ideas and sort of work out what... I've got a few different ideas for Mm -hmm. the next book I might want to do, but I would just want to wait and give those sort of time to really sort of be able to think about it. The last few years in general have been quite hectic. We... um, you know, moved house a couple of times, moved, left London, you know, made a, made a TV series mm. that was on earlier this year, all of what, and I've done all of this with teaching yeah. as well. And so I'm just kind of trying to take a bit of a break. Sure. Well, not a break, that's not true at all. <laughs> but just, I guess, just kind focus of... On other projects, focus right? on other projects. Focus on other projects, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's curious. I, I like the idea that it's about kind of incubating or creating room for the new ideas and for allowing it to spread through, because I kind of wondered with the books if, well contradictory to the pace at which you've written them but for me I, w- I largely work with exhibitions and collections and I like the with exhibition making that you get to really zone in on a subject for a year or two at a time and and then and then you move on to something else but you've really kind of lived it for a while is that the hope of the next phase in a way that maybe you'll be able to focus on something in its own right or your own ideas yeah definitely I think that would be the ideal I think I'd like a bit longer to work on on the next book I think just like giving myself space to sort of germinate new ideas Mm -hmm. I feel like over the last few years everything has I've been kind of flying by the seat of my pants a bit Mm -hmm. is that the right phrase yeah Yeah. where you've kind of you've got so many yeah so many new like projects coming up all the time and it's fantastic and you kind of immerse yourself in them but you're always sort of slightly playing catch up with yourself whereas now I think I'd like to be able to spend a bit of time really thinking about things and you know just yeah planning Mm. sort of planning what I'm going to be spending the next few years doing yeah yeah that's probably useful advice for other people but it's also a note of kind of confidence in yourself and the point of your career that you're at so good to hear so a lot of uh, fashion historians I find or either work as curators as well or have kind of um, combined the two in terms of their practice you work with collections and other forms of institutions a lot but you seem to kind of I'm kind of interested in the independence of what you do and you tend to often operate as an individual within your practice who then collaborates with these um, different things has that been deliberate or were you interested in working in museums or you know how's it going I mean that's not really been deliberate per se I would definitely be interested in working in museums but the, I mean, it was kind of working in universities mm-hmm. was the route that I've always kind of sort of gone down as an associate lecturer. I think it's, I would, I would love to do some curation at some point, but it's not just something that people can like, you know, easily step into. Yeah. All of these industries, you know, publishing, academia, curation they're all quite closed industries you Mm. have to have particular contacts you have to have studied for a long time like you know curation especially there's huge discussions at the moment about all of the free internships that Mm, people have to do the fact that it's such a you know overwhelmingly middle class Mm. profession to get into if you come from a background where you can't afford to do free internships it's completely closed to you so I don't think that it's a given that someone working with history in some way is going to work across all of those different areas yeah. because you're you, there's an awful lot of social and cultural capital involved in working in any of these industries mm. at all it's not been a deliberate choice i love museums i love museum collections 
I would absolutely love to do some curation at some point, but I'm not trained as a curator. Mm-hmm. It's something I would love to learn more about, but it's just, yeah, I've been, I've, off, I've been working in sort of higher education as an educator across a number of different arts universities, and it just hasn't sort of come up, yeah, I yeah. guess, <laughs> for it's all of those not, reasons, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's absolutely not a compulsory thread. I was interested because of the fact that a lot of your work and your research seems to be object-based, and you're mm. really interested in the different roles you've described and in your background on um, kind of starting with the garment and the garment being an absolute focus. So be interested to hear if, um, yeah, a, about that research process, really, and the way in which you use objects and garments in your work. It's, it's a few different ways, I guess, depending on what kind of project I'm working on. And actually what was interesting with the, the BBC 4TV series I did mm. last year is what we got to work with. It, it was an art historical approach, that mm. TV series, which was kind of new to me. Like I'm not um, trained as an art historian. It's not the way that I often approach, um, you know, sort of the route into history. But I found I really, really enjoyed it. And not only that, but then also there was this recreation element, the experimental archaeology that um, Ninia Michaela, the historical tailor, and her team Mm. adopt. And that I found really, really fascinating. And that way of working with objects where you're you're looking at paintings and objects from the past Mm -hmm. and then trying as best you can to recreate them to gain an even deeper understanding Mm -hmm. of the objects themselves through this kind of making process yeah I think that's really really curious applying different practices to really yeah as you say kind of get inside the object rather than take it take the external um external perspective or summary of it from something like a painting I was going to ask you about that later but was <laughs> the thing I really really enjoyed with, with that series which I think was a great success congratulations <laughs> was the pairing of um kind of personal perspective and biography and talking about individuals or social history um with that practice-based knowledge and expertise and that as you said kind of ecological work of reconstructing or reconsidering pieces do you think when you're talking about fashion history you should be talking about the maker's experience and expertise as well as the wearer's experience and context yeah definitely I think you should be looking at the whole you know breadth and and scope of what clothing entails how it came to be how it is worn how it communicates all of these different areas. I mean, that's what I really enjoy about material culture approaches to history, mm. is that through looking at objects, you can branch into all of these different areas. Yeah. So you can look at not only the object itself, not only ideas around taste and how that fits in with you know class and status and wealth, but also where these things, where these, uh, where the sort of ingredients, I guess, of the object came from. Mm-hmm. You're looking at sort of international trade routes yeah. and travel and you're looking at manufacturing and technology Mm. all of these different areas all bound up in you know different objects whether it's a one-off you know completely sort of specialized art piece or whether it's an everyday object yes exactly I think the everyday object is is fascinating as well because I think it can be so underestimated particularly items of dress we we're kind of used to or within a vocabulary now of talking about personality through dress or we you know we all wear clothes every day so we can understand the physical experience as well but what you've just said there about thinking about the international perspective and the source materials and Mm. the different voices a previous boss of mine Bill Sherman did a project around one object a hundred worlds or a hundred stories and I think that's really really interesting for that because yeah you know give you a dress and you can tell a hundred tales 
tails. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. That's like the opposite of the what yeah. the world in a hundred objects. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's where you got his idea from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so perhaps on that idea of telling different stories, objects. Um, I asked you to bring a, an item with you today for this interview. Could you introduce your object, please? Yes, indeed. It is here, kept in this bag. <laughs> I was going to steam it um, before you arrived, but so this is <laughs> this is a Bieber oh, dress um, that was owned by my mother, oh. and it is bottle green. It's floor length. It has covered buttons mm. going, you know, very far down the front of the dress. It has an inbuilt belt, and crucially, it has these sleeves which yeah. are long and then go down into a point, like a kind of faux medieval mm. uh, style in the sleeves. So it's really quite dramatic, but it's made of a kind of um, flannel and almost, almost toweling yeah. is what it looks like in terms of its material. It's lighter than I thought it would be as well, just touching the sleeve there, which is interesting because it has a real impact to it in terms yes. of the sheen and the structure. Definitely. So it has, it's quite dramatic, definitely mm. quite dramatic. Now this belonged to my mum and the reason I chose this is because it's, well, it's always been a really important object to me, obviously, because it was my mum's and it sort of, you know, signifies all of those you know, who she was before mm -hmm. she became a mother, essentially, yeah. her, um, you know, other lives. I've always been obsessed with Bieber, I mm -hmm. think probably because my mum loved shopping there so yeah. much. And so it was one of the first, one of the first sort of, first parts of fashion history I started researching, I guess. Okay. I read Barbara Hulanicki's autobiography when I was quite young. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was obsessed with that, that sort of dressing, like sort of mm. 60s and 70s when I was a teenager as well. Mm -hmm. And was that the, the scene of the 60s and 70s or the connection through your mother or the clothes? What was the appeal that drew you to that subject first? I think all of it, really. Mm -hmm. I just, I'd all, I always really liked looking to the past for the ways that I was getting dressed. I always shopped at charity shops or sort of fledgling vintage stores, not that there were many around, you know, where I was growing up. Mm -hmm. But that was where I was always shopping. I sort of listened to old music I just always sort of liked old things yeah. <laughs> I guess um, and I don't really know where that came from because mm. actually conversely my mum has always you know been has quite liked very modern design okay things to be sort of like up to date and you know when we were little our house was all white mm -hmm. um walls like it was an old um house but it was all kind of white inside and you know she was quite interested in sort of clean lines and the complete opposite of my aesthetic <laughs> in many ways but the other thing i love about this dress is that you can see where it's been altered oh, in various great. places you can see oh, here and this is from various times where my mum has lent it to her friends. Mm. One of whom, as you can see here, actually took it up um, <laughs> because she was shorter than my mum and she needed it to be shorter. So you can see this very sort of crude. That's, yeah, it's really charming. Very quickly the hem done. Really, exactly, the hem really, really waves. Yeah. That's someone about to go to a party. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you can see, you've got all these stories that you can tell about, mm. you know, sort of female friendships relationships and the importance of dress yeah in um you know sort of women's relationships as well absolutely i love the idea of it being a piece that's passed between your mother's friendship group and then passed to you and that kind of mixed experience that it's seen yeah <laughs> exactly and i also when i went back to university to do my master's a long time ago now this is one of the things i wrote about mm -hmm. um so i kind of looked through back through all the beaver catalogues 
found the one where it was featured, which I think was, 19, it was 1972 or 73, and just kind of used this as a real jumping off point for my own sort of fledgling historical research, I suppose. That's great. So, yeah, it's been present at various kind of moments in my life. Yeah, so it's a career launch pad as well, which I'm curious. <laughs> I think it's interesting that within that you highlighted your mother's interest in kind of contemporary taste, and Bieber was so perfectly of her moment. Um, but then the interesting thing within her designs is, as you said, there's kind of references to other eras and mm. kind of medievalism within this particular design. Um, and I find that quite intriguing, that idea that, you know, we now this is a vintage piece and, and it's kind of preserved for its style to represent a particular time, but it also represents the fact that fashion is always cyclical and we're always referencing other eras. Even if something comes to absolutely epitomise a particular period, if you break it down, you can go, well, actually, they're talking about the 30s and the yeah. 1990s. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, Bieber really is, you know, I mean, they were just fantastic at that with the Art Deco, the yeah. sort of, you know, 70s to 30s. A lot of that was really bound up in um, Bieber's designs. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also the the sense that it was attached to a scene and experience as well. Like my my mum was a, an aspiring Bieber baby and it was it was about going on a pilgrimage to the um, yeah. to the department store and things. And yeah. That's interesting. Do you know anything about your mother's... Um, has she told any stories of wearing this piece or of the friends borrowing it? Yes, well, she interested? said that she would she would wear it in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, in well, if we were to, to look at it through the parlance of today's fashion magazines, it would be, you know, sort of dressing it up or dressing yeah. it down. <laughs> um, so she used to either wear it, um, you know, with heels for, you know, going to a sort of, sort of, swanky event mm. but she said she equally she would wear it a lot with kind of knee-high flat boots and a polo neck underneath oh, nice. um uh, and just kind of you know sort of stomping around London yeah. I guess yeah that's absolutely great I really like that there's alteration marks and there's a couple of loose threads and things where someone's taken it in that are still there and become a part of the story of the dress I'm, yeah I'm always saying with students at LCF like samples have their place in archives and collections but I get excited when you get an alteration mark or a downing mark and you get to think about why is that special why is someone kept on wanting to wear this yeah well also I think it's the imprint of the body isn't it yeah. that's what you get with clothes that you don't necessarily get with other objects that we keep in museums or archives mm. um you know you can see sort of sweat marks or stretch marks or you know the imprint of the foot in shoes yeah. things like that so it's this real sort of visceral connection yeah to the past absolutely and it reminds you of the experience of the wearer but also kind of the purpose of the garment because i definitely find frustration in my role sometimes is that these pieces once they become an object and enter a collection they'll never be worn again so something that your um, your TV programme kind of helps to address is the experience of actually having it on. How does it catch the light? How does it move? How much weight are we talking about putting yeah. on someone's body? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is really yeah. interesting. Kind of imagining the wearer and things with this particular piece. I was intrigued as well because the, the dress, as you said, is very long and it kind of vaguely follows the line of the body. But then the, with these large sleeves, I'm a huge fan of large sleeves. And I think yeah. <laughs> there's kind of a sub-series or story you could tell within women's fashion about large sleeves being about taking up space mm. and making kind of mm. social impact with your gestures and definitely kind of definitely like parading <laughs> I mean this one in particular it's such an unusual style of sleeve I mean it does have the very high very narrow shoulder that you know mm. Bieber is famed for but you definitely you can't be a wallflower in this no. dress you know <laughs> you really it is dramatic you are sweeping your arms around and mm. 
gesticulating and yeah being very present yeah yeah absolutely completely inhabiting it yeah so with that in mind suppose the next question would be have you worn it yourself or is it a piece you keep as uh, i have worn it not very often um i've worn it a couple of times when i was going out in my early 20s i wore it to sort of a spring party one time i put loads of yellow flowers in my Uh hair and it was kind of dressing as, as a, a daffodil or something, I guess. Um, I was thinking pre-Raphaelite. Yeah. <laughs> as a pre-Raphaelite daffodil. Yeah. 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 A well-known breed of daffodil. <laughs> yeah. Or I guess as a kind of Oscar Wilde sunflower, yeah, that okay. kind of aesthetic sunflower. Mm. But I don't wear it very often. My mum's taller than me. Okay. And, so, and I don't actually really ever wear floor-length skirts or dresses um, because I'm really short uh, and I just kind of often feel like I'm wearing a, a tent it doesn't it just doesn't feel like me mm-hmm. so I don't wear it very often for that reason and also because just because you know I'm scared of kind of damaging it you know even further mm-hmm. so there is I do kind of you know I have a I feel a sort of duty of care to it I yeah. want to protect it and I want to preserve it yeah but I would I certainly wouldn't rule out wearing it again yeah. at some point in the future definitely so it's a sense of responsibility but not of um hard and fast kind of protection and uh, yeah exactly it's yeah. really really great um so within that that places it in almost a different part of your life and your wardrobe in that it's not a piece that's in kind of active use which brings me to do you collect anything yourself do you either clothing that you would see more as a piece that you're um, you have for the love of it rather than for the wear of it or other items and other interests I don't think I, I don't collect anything in in that you know I have this one specific group of things that I collect but I mean I'm always looking for different types of clothing different types of textiles um to wear Mm -hmm. Uh, so for example i was in china earlier this year over the summer and we went to the biggest flea market in beijing oh wow yeah (laughs) very very exciting and so there i bought some um sort of old chinese pieces varying in age i think one is sort of early 20th century and the other couple of uh, probably later, like sort of more mid-century mm-hmm. pieces. But so, yes, if I'm going away anywhere like that, I will often pick up pieces to wear, specifically mm-hmm. to wear. I've done that before in Eastern Europe as well, in places like Romania and Bulgaria. Yeah, everywhere I go, okay. I will try to look for old clothes, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the thrill of the chase of flea markets as a general rule, or is that a way of reading and experiencing that place and its culture through its its forgotten or uh, underappreciated treasures that turn up at those places? Um, I think it's both. It's definitely both. But it's also I'm also really fascinated by souvenirs, mm. by the idea of souvenirs and commemorating a place through an object or commemorating a mm. time or a holiday through an object. That display cabinet over there is full of souvenirs (laughs) um loads of like old souvenirs loads of them are from my hometown Mm. um you know that I've just but also from all over the world ones Mm. that I've picked up either in the place that the souvenir commemorates or in other places Mm -hmm. and I found that especially in somewhere like eastern Europe and actually in China you know in most places in the world there would be clothing that was worn by the local population and there would also be clothing that was worn for that was created for export mm-hmm. or as souvenirs mm. and so this would tend to be a kind of exaggerated version of what was perceived to be right. local yeah. dress and i find that really really fascinating mm. so with you know in the sort of um 
a lot of the folk textiles from Eastern Europe, for example, trying to work out what was actually, you know, worn, created and worn as like Sunday best, for yeah. example, versus what was created and sold as peasant clothing. Yes, yeah, sure. Those distinctions I find really, really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and local techniques, you know, so a lot of, obviously a lot of embroidery um, and things like that. And then in with the pieces I got from China, actually quite a lot of it was printed. Mm. Um, although there were some sort of woven, sort of intarsia designs um, as well. Mm. Yeah, um, so that's what I find really interesting. Yeah, I love that idea that it's about... Um, projection of a character rather than actual you know everyday existence and experience and about anything anytime we put on clothes we're thinking about audience and viewers as well as our own experience but the idea of creating products specifically almost to beguile or yeah. <laughs> to create another form of identity or to satisfy another market and audience yeah creating an ideal through them that's so interesting so you very kindly um, invited me to your house for this interview and I have seen the feature on the Guardian in advance so I had a <laughs> sense of what to expect um, but it's absolutely brilliant I think it's the boldest interior I've seen and I mean that as an absolute compliment um, <laughs> could you perhaps describe your interior style how it came to be um, and yeah, your process for this flat well so when we got this flat it was just a sort of magnolia box mm-hmm. uh, hadn't been touched probably for about 20 years and we, my boyfriend and I just love colour mm-hmm. and pattern. And we're just, you know, we're just always obsessed that we wanted as much colour and as much pattern on as many surfaces as we okay. could possibly find it. So we went through various different ideas and we, we decided to put a dado rail back up. So this wasn't here when we got ah. the flat. So that we could have two different wallpapers. Great. Maximise. <laughs> to maximise the pattern. We're lucky because we've got really high ceilings. Yeah. So you can have the two different wallpapers in it. Um, uh, and it works quite well mm. in this space. So I guess, I guess you would, if you were going to sort of characterise it somehow, it's kind of, I guess, sort of 60s, 70s does Victoriana, okay. I think. Yeah. I think they're kind of... Sort of those kind of layers of history, I guess, throughout the design in a lot of the rooms. So the top wallpaper in all of the rooms mm. is dead stock, sort of 60s, late 60s, early 70s mm. wallpaper. And then we've paired that below with anaglypta, which is, you know, was was Victorian wallpaper, but it's still very readily available, yeah. still very um, inexpensive. Mm. And so we chose different sort of complementary anaglypta patterns. For those of you who don't know what anaglypta is it's the sort of raised uh textured wallpaper that you often find in old houses or that you maybe grew up with and would kind of pick off the yeah. <laughs> you know, spongy bits from your from the wallpaper that's how lots of people uh, kind of remember it mm-hmm. and then you can kind of paint that so we've painted the bottom sections to complement the dead stock wallpapers at the top and so yeah i guess it's that kind of yeah, 1960s, 70s idea of Victoriana. So it's kind of a sort of hallucinogenic version of Victoriana, I guess, except for the bathroom in which we've just gone full art deco. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> That's great. Again, therefore, that links the idea of cyclical nature of styles and one era referencing another, which is really nice. So it links to professional practice. And I also imagine <laughs> rela- uh, relates that personal uh, enjoyment of hunting out things at flea markets <laughs> definitely yeah 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 yeah, definitely and we were also we'd always been super keen that we wanted a patterned carpet as well um and we luckily found a carpet in a pattern that came in three different colors oh, the great. three different colors that we've used throughout the flat so we've got the same carpet 
in three different colours. Satisfying. Which is very satisfying. <laughs> and it's funny, I, carpet is such anathema in the interiors world. You know, people just obsess over floorboards. I've never wanted to live in somewhere with bare floorboards. Mm-hmm. For me, it's just not cosy. Mm-hmm. I want somewhere that I can, you know, I can just can sit on the floor. I can lie on the floor if I want. And I also yeah. want colour and pattern as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Maximum yeah. textile content. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> um, are you interested in the relationship between interiors and fashion and style more generally? That's something that I find quite intriguing historically. Yeah, I am. It's something I'd like to read a lot more about, actually, mm-hmm. and especially the interplay between the two. I mean, what it sort of strikes me is, you know, with the V&A, quite a few years ago now, when they redid their permanent collection. Mm permanent display of fashion and textiles is in the display cases they included a lot of chairs from the particular eras and that was not only to give a sense of the continuity of sort of design styles and movements in different periods but also to sort of make you think about how your clothing helps you function within Mm. a space how do you sit down when you're wearing this you know that kind of relationship and that's definitely something that I think is very interesting I mean interiors trends obviously move slower than clothing trends because it's you know it takes a lot longer to redecorate your house than yeah. it does to redecorate your body <laughs> yeah, simple as that <laughs> yeah but it is i mean this is the first this is the only you know place we've ever owned and as i was researching what we were going to do in our um you know for the you know decorating it and when we were sort of renovating it there are certain things that i suddenly realized were very very on trend um and it just suddenly i have never really come into contact with that whole world of sort of trend-driven interiors before but you know you just see just suddenly it was like everything was white walls everything was bare floorboards Mm. everything was marble everything was rose gold you know suddenly you're like oh my god it's everywhere (laughs) (laughs) suddenly like sort of me and my boyfriend developed a saying when we were sort of like trying to like temper each other's ideas we'd be like oh that's a bit pinterest <laughs> and then it'd be like that's a definite no then. Yeah. Yeah. back away <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's great so again it allows it to be kind of personality and personal taste driven in terms of the experience um i think it's also worth noting that we're in margate and from where we're sat right now we can see the sea yeah. which is an absolute joy and um, i used to live in brighton and i've got a bit of a thing for the kind of interests of seaside towns i was wondering if that's been an influence or interest in your own work, particularly when you were writing Nautical Chic. Were you already living here? Were you about to move here? Was it an influence? I wasn't living here when I wrote Nautical Chic. I was living in London, but I grew up in a seaside town um, called Lowestoft and have always been obsessed with exactly what you just described, basically, that kind of eccentricity of seaside towns, the kind of faded glamour, the sort of, again, the, the mix of, you know, different periods of history and a lot of, you know, I grew up very near Great Yarmouth, which to this day is one of my absolute favourite places mm. in the world. And you've got this mix of incredibly grand Victorian architecture mm. and then the sort of like 19, you know, sort of 60s slot machines and the sort of 1980s graphics on top of that. And like just these layers and layers and mm. layers of fun. Yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> and I just love it. It's like generation after generation just, you know, making doing the best that they can mm. with the British weather. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> making <laughs> exactly. And making these places place, places of fun and mm. entertainment. And so all of the sort of end of the pier entertainment, winter gardens, mm. I love, I'm obsessed with winter gardens. I love Blackpool. Blackpool is also one of my favourite places mm. in the world. There's just something absolutely magical there. And I know all of these towns are beset with particular sort of social and economic um, issues as well as is Margate. Mm-hmm. 
which are endemic to coastal communities, certain coastal communities at the time, because you just have generation upon generation of failed industries, you know, um, boat building, fishing, herring fishing, um, uh, tourism. I mean, the tourism one, I think, is slightly on the rise now, especially in Margate, but also in other seaside towns. But so you've got that to sort of counteract it as well which is important to keep in mind. But there's something absolutely magical, I've always found really magical about Seaside Town and all of those kind of different histories together and the idea that it's this kind of space of fun and entertainment and where you can kind of let yourself go a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I like those the idea of those different purposes coexisting, but also this different era, as you said, within that, like... Each you know each generation trying to find its own way to have fun, but therefore each time that will be the fun of that generation or that era, mm. and what that looks like and what that involves, whether it's the slot machines or whether it's a ballroom, is <laughs> kind, of, yeah. kind of contrast with each other. So it's nice when those juxtapositions emerge of what survives. Somewhere. Definitely, and so that absolutely impacted my writing of nautical mm-hmm. chic, and it also went back to some of my earliest research interests. Again, when I was doing my masters, I wrote my whole dissertation on the impact of sailor. Uh, clothing, sailor uniform on Victorian swimwear Mm. Um, and so it was kind of growing out of that and really just this interest that you know as an island nation the interest that we have with the sea, the very strong relationship we have with the sea especially you know in terms of you know empire and imperialism Mm. as well it's completely, the sea is completely unavoidable in our culture Yeah. Um, and how that expresses itself on the body I find really interesting yeah, that's intriguing so we've spoken about your different influences, roles and kind of research areas. I'd be interested now and to talk more about almost your personal style and personal experience of clothes, if that's okay. Um, so I'd be interested to know how your work influences the way in much you dress. Well, it kind of always influences the way that I dress because I'm always researching different periods of history, different types of clothing. And so that has a knock-on effect, sure. definitely. Do you start inhabiting what you're researching, if that makes sense? Does it start to Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I think I have quite a sort of costume-based approach to getting dressed. For me, there is not really so much of a distinction mm-hmm. between those two okay. kinds of things, there maybe it's for other people. Okay, so you think of clothes as, as performative and that's a part of any everyday dressing as well as, yeah, yeah yeah definitely definitely and that's always been something that's not really been a conscious thing mm-hmm. that's just always kind of been something that I've done so yes yeah, so it's fantastic so I've got the perfect job in many ways because I just get to <laughs> research different types of dress and then think about how I can yeah. <laughs> adopt those in my own wardrobe yeah. <laughs> yeah time to revive that look um, yeah that's great so perhaps then as a closing question um, with that line between your professional practice and your personal style in mind if I was to collect one item to represent your work um, but also your wardrobe what would it be and why one item I guess it would have to be a turban I think okay yeah great I have a load of turbans that I wear I kind of I'm always I've always been a big fan of hats Mm -hmm. in general turbans are just so easy to wear because they're you know unlike sort of hard hats you can wear them and do pretty much anything it actually came about I think I was doing a radio show a few years ago with a I used to DJ a lot and we Mm. did a show on Jazz FM for a long time and in the studio when you're wearing headphones Uh. and you're recording the radio show if you're wearing a turban it's fine but you're wearing any other type of hat obviously it becomes difficult so it became kind of a practical consideration but now I kind of feel like an outfit doesn't really feel pulled together for me fully unless I've got some kind of hat on Mm -hmm. and I wear turbans a lot I think because it goes with my sort of hair you know sort of 1920s element to it 
And so I guess it would be, um, would have to be a turban, I yeah. think. Yeah, and they relate to so many different periods of history as well, whether it's, you know, sort of 1960s sort of Palm Springs sort of lounging by the pool or whether it's sort of 1930s Hollywood or 1910s Hollywood or sort of 1810s Paris, for example. So there is all of these different kinds of... Yeah. But again, they have to yeah. coexist within one garment in yeah. design and design, yeah. and therefore, I would imagine, can be paired quite easily with all the different references you end up pulling into your wardrobe depending on your work. So yes, exactly. the perfect finishing touch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me. That was so interesting, um, and it was great to talk to you today. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. <laughs>